This is the full interview from a segment from the Overdrive radio and podcast program. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Many years ago, there was an Institution of Engineers meeting addressed by some executives from the Department of Main Roads. The then head of planning sat at the back of the meeting, occasionally muttering his contempt for what was being said. In those days, the two departments operated like two opposing fiefdoms, a classic example of government departments working within each of their own silos. The Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management, among others, pushed hard to embrace a more collaborative approach under the banner of land use transport planning. Now we are embracing an even wider group of influencers. Kirsty Kelly was the CEO of the Australian Institute of Planning Australia, but then moved to being CEO of AITPM, and she joins us on the line. G'day, Kirsty. Hi, David. When you moved over a year or so ago, it perhaps wasn't seen as joining the enemy as it might have been in the past? No, not at all. So I left the Planning Institute of Australia uh, five, a bit over five years ago and had obviously a break in between. But uh, no, it's, it's not, not seen as the uh, the enemy at all, I don't think. Um, there's a, I mean, obviously there's a, a different relationship, I suppose, between um, departments depending on which jurisdiction you're in and, and the way that um, professionals work together depending on jurisdiction and types of projects. But I think there's a generally a closer um, recognition and collaboration um, between uh, professionals in the, the land use space and transport planning. How did you find then? Has it enhanced and developed your understanding from the transport perspective and from where they see themselves? Uh, yeah, well, look, prior to working for the Planning Institute of Australia, I was a planner myself and so worked quite a lot with um, transport planners and traffic engineers in projects. So I, I had a working knowledge of, of the field and, and certainly then um, as CEO of the Planning Institute, we did um, quite a bit of collaborative work with um, not so much AITPM but other organisations like the Bus Industry Association and uh, Australian Railways Association in um, the Moving People Task Force, um, which was a, a national um, advocacy project on, on transport planning. But um, I think since moving to AITPM, probably the areas that I've developed my knowledge more of, and there's still certainly a lot more to learn, are more so in the, the, you know, the, more of the detail around transport modelling, um, which is still definitely something I, I have a, a broad understanding of the concepts, but uh, there's a lot of uh, detailed technical knowledge in there that I don't profess to understand, um, but also understanding more about the different um, sort of fields and disciplines within um this organisation because we cover such a, a breadth um, within that. So, you know, working with the people on travel demand management and road safety and um, some of that, uh, you know, journey planning, all, all sorts of more specific fields within um, transport planning and traffic management. So uh, there's a lot more in that and some of that relates to, to land use planning, but other things are um, sort of far more detailed. So uh, the knowledge is getting there, but uh, there's a lot, lot more to, lot more to learn. But yours is a, in part a facilitation role too. You don't have to be the expert. The devil is often in the detail, though, in communicating that narrower streets and urban areas might create a sense of community, but they might stop garbage trucks, and that's often used as a weapon to stop things happening or to oppose 
stridently. Is is there a need for us to evolve into, well, if that's an issue, how do we overcome it? Yeah, so I think um, that has certainly been, and I experienced some of those issues back when I was uh, working in local government as a planner and uh, then in planning consultancy, working on, on some design projects and dealing with, um, you know, various standards and guidelines um, from a, a traffic engineering perspective that were um, perhaps being a barrier to dealing with more active transport issues and trying to get um, you know more vibrant local communities um, rather than designing everything for the um, for the rubbish trucks and uh, and what have you. So I think part of this is greater collaboration between disciplines. Um, so a more multidisciplinary approach, which is something you know this isn't new. Everyone's been advocating for this for a long time, but how we work together um, to a more, a more common goal and, and I guess what I'm starting to see more of coming through and again this is not new because these issues have been around for a long time but certainly a stronger focus on issues around climate change and sustainability are starting to really push people to think more about how we need to design our our urban areas differently um, that we need to try to reduce the um, the private car use and encourage active travel and and certainly even you know COVID has made some changes there in terms of the way that people are engaging within their communities, walking and cycling more locally. Um, and they're then noticing that perhaps their, um, you know, their streets and suburbs aren't um, as friendly for, for people to walk and cycle. They aren't as safe or they're not as comfortable. And then from that, even the climate change perspective in terms of, um, you know, heat in urban areas, that if we don't have our, our streets and cities designed to um, be more accommodating of people walking in them and, and dealing with some of those heat issues, shade and positioning of buildings and, and other comfort things that people require. And, and thinking about this from people of, of all ages and abilities. So that's you know one of the other areas that I'm, I'm really enjoying seeing coming through more strongly in AITPM is thinking about more accessible and inclusive planning and that, that we're not um, designing we shouldn't be designing our cities and our, our streets and transport networks and systems for one type of person. We have people with all sorts of abilities and we need to accommodate that. Your use of the word comfort factors, I think, is really very critical. If we start looking at more active transport, be it walking or scooters or whatever, it's going to be factors like rain and darkness and so on that has significant impact in either accepting that we move down that direction, let alone doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, considering this, the human dimension, so it's not just about what, what you can physically see, but how people feel in a space, whether they, they feel comfortable, whether they're going to get, get rained on or get sunburnt when they're walking to the train. Um, and, and certainly, you know, one of the things that we've actually got a session next week with uh, the, the team at Tramlab, um, talking about um, safety for women and girls on public transport and, and mm. not just on the transport but to and, to and from and, and a, a walking route for you, David, might feel perfectly fine and, and comfortable and, and safe but for someone else from a different, of a different gender or a different cultural background may certainly find it a very different and um, there was some work in New South Wales um, on safety after dark and it was spaces around, you know, a particular route may be perfectly fine during the day, but how you feel about walking um, on that route at night or if you're a teenager or an, an older woman or how you might feel, it, it can be quite different. So it, um, we need to be careful when we're um, planning and thinking about all of this that it, we're not just um, doing it with one type of person in mind. 
that brings in modeling. Uh, I modeled in you know, my early part of my career, time, distance and cost were the key figures, let alone it was very much narrowing down on journey to work. The complexity and the personal factors involved in that is really an interesting, perhaps booming area. Absolutely. Um, you know, it really, when we, and I know that you know, organisations are and it definitely needs to be doing this more, thinking about things in a much broader way. There are so many different factors here. It isn't yet just about journey to work. It isn't just about efficiency. And, and that makes it more complex and difficult. So um, in a sense for our industry, it means there's more work um, because there are so many different factors you need to consider and we need to, to change our models and think about how we do things differently and whether the sorts of models we've used in the past will continue to work in the future when we're th- you know, having to deal with all of these different sorts of factors for how people move and do things. And, and of course, you know, in these last two years, we've then seen um, things change again quite significantly and we're going through now at the moment it feels like a just a day by day or week by week kind of change in terms of what what's happening and and what how we'll come out the other side of this is there if there is another if there is sort of another side of this it's more I think a new world of of how we do things what that means for how people move in their neighborhoods where they work how often they travel into a workplace have the workplaces changed and and the, even the composition of who's doing that um i guess division of household work and journeys where um certainly the a lot of the um, anecdotal evidence um and certainly even just talking to people that that the split within households uh between um with parents in terms of mothers and fathers doing different uh, working in different ways and who becomes responsible for getting kids to and from school has definitely changed in the last two years. So it'd be interesting to see how that evolves over the coming coming years and uh, and what then that means from a modelling perspective because I, I suspect we can't go back to data that we used a couple of years ago and assume that that still, um, that still stands. There's a couple of lovely issues there that what happens in the past is not necessarily by just measuring what movements we make is not necessarily what the same movements. A lot of modelling, be it for trying to bring in scooters, is to say, well, this was the trip made by car, therefore it'll try and make that exact trip made by scooter. Well, it's not that simple at all. It might be a different trip altogether. Yeah, absolutely. And just uh, you know, something I've observed in on the occasions I've been into uh, sort of inner Brisbane and, and the number of uh, people moving around, so tradies on scooters. So we're sort of seeing changes in the city there where you're having people parking a distance away from their work sites and then scootering to where they need to go or perhaps they have caught a train and are, are scootering in from there. So different kinds of journeys that weren't, you know, yeah, it's really quite quite different. So how you capture all of that and understand people's motivations for, for why they're doing it and, and, what's, uh, and, and what that journey is perhaps... Um, type of mode has replaced it's yeah it's a really interesting time really we tend to think of capturing it then to predict the future whereas what you've raised there of course is scenarios Mm. uh, that we don't just say well 25 years time 232 cars will be turning left at this intersection it it's much more embracing behaviour change as is happening. And we'll be talking to the cycling department and that from Sydney Council, you know, that it's it's looking at not behaviour change in a manipulative way, but understanding where people are coming from. 
Yeah, look, I think it's it's an interesting area and, and just thinking that perhaps, you know, one of the things we need to be thinking about more is that um, the psychology of, of, of people's decisions and, and why. Mm. Why and how they make those decisions? What influences that? And then, and then, in a sense, without being too manipulative, how you can um, influence their decisions or what it is that, that changes that. But understanding that, and that, as you say, I think the perhaps that sort of traditional, you know, prediction models and what have you are, are perhaps not going to be as effective as they perhaps were. If you know, if they were effective in the past, it's hard to uh, certainly there's some bit of contention around how effective modelling has been. Um, so, you know, certainly with the way that things are changing, is that going to be an effective way to do things into the future or do we need to do to do things quite differently? And, and I guess in a sense, because we have access to a lot more data than we've had in the past and that there's certainly, um, you know, beyond the sort of traditional traffic, traffic counting kinds of approaches, there is, there's so much data available now. Um, through a range of means that which is being used across all sorts of industries to understand people's, um, you know, patterns of behaviour, whether it's their spending habits or all sorts of things, um, you know, how we access that data and use that to understand what's going on. But then there's understanding what's going on, but, again, then thinking about how you use that to plan um, and implement change is, a, is another factor. I think we're going to need to be um, a bit more agile than we've been in the past. Agile is it's the notion of Darwin that the survival of the fittest is not the biggest or necessarily the biggest brain, but those who adapt. Absolutely. It was one of the lovely webinars that AITBM held and we and we broke off into groups and there was a, a youngish lady there who had just bought a new house. And the question was, what were your criteria? And the first one was the room in which I would do some work from home. Second was near to a beach or near to the to the coast third was to ride to the shops and fourth was journey to work which is a total turnaround in many ways of how we've looked at the transport task in the past it's one example but it's an example a good example that makes us think and definitely things are um are changing but then there are some things that just you know it takes a long time for some things to change so I want to sort of go back to to my planning career. You know, planning is a long term proposition, so you can't even just when it comes to development. Um, you know, the time from making a change to policy to having an application go through a system to then seeing it actually a developer actually building something on the ground. You know, most things of any substance take multiple years, and in that time, so many other things can change. So. We're seeing certainly some things changing now and, and the ability for, you know, with transport, we've had all the sort of pop-up bike lanes and all those kinds of shorter-term, um, lower-cost interventions that are able to facilitate change um, are really positive. Um, the challenge will be around the bigger infrastructure projects and how, you know, things that we're planning or now and when they get built, you know, what is that the change that's happened in society in the meantime? You know, on large projects, it's a bit like turning the Titanic. So, you know, if we've got these sort of changes that we're experiencing in society now, you can't just sort of flip a switch and suddenly a project is is done. These things are years and years in the making. So I think part of where we need to be looking as an industry is that combination of obviously we need long-term infrastructure projects and need to be thinking thinking long-term and you know, particularly where it's things that require land. There's a long period of time it takes to to plan new corridors, but there are other shorter-term, lower-cost 
interventions that we can be implementing or preparing to implement as needed to accommodate the changes. And that's, you know, where we've seen during COVID those sort of pop-up bike lanes and things that were happening in various locations Mm. um, around the country and trialling things without building massive amounts of infrastructure. But, you know, sometimes it's fairly simple things with, um, you know, paint on the road and a a few um, little barriers to to protect to an extent cyclists. But, uh, yeah, it's good to see those interventions happening, but there's still a long way to go. Tactical urbanism like that of building a bit is a wonderful approach to saying, well, hang on, I, I don't think I have the absolute answer and I'm not going to try and be a fundamentalist to tell you to like it or lump it. I'm going to say, well, look, for these reasons, I'm going to try this, but there will be some adaptations to it perhaps, or we're open to the idea of adaptations as we go. Yes, absolutely. And so that's, that's something that, you know, has been around for a while and it was something that at Planning Institute, we, we did quite a few sessions on technical urbanism. I think one of the challenges that perhaps comes through within the AIT, AITPM community is around uh, when we're looking at how we deal with, with standards and safety. So, I mean, that is obviously a really critical issue and we need to make sure that any of those sorts of, you know, pop-up things and tactical urbanism or have you, that we're not putting people in in harm's way. So it, it certainly is, you know, that, that our, our profession bears a, a responsibility for the safety of, of all users of that space. So, you know, we do have to be careful about how it's done, but certainly being brave enough to try some different things. And sometimes that is also, you know, politically challenging. So, you know, that is, that is the area in all of this that can be a bit of a wild card at times, depending on what, you know, location you're working in as to the acceptance of whether it's your sort of political masters or the community of these sorts of initiatives. And that's why, you know, seeing some jurisdictions going ahead with them and, and part of our role at AITPM is to share that experience, mm. good and bad, so that we can see what has and hasn't worked, how people got things through, what arguments they used perhaps to push the case for those things to occur so that then others can pick up and learn from that example and adapt that within their communities and, and pursue those opportunities. In many ways, that's a lot to do with how we use the output, be it from modelling or other things, because quite often a one-liner might be grabbed from it and used in a political environment to create a narrative, which seems, among other things, to be absolutely certain when in reality it needs to be adaptable. And you would have found in planning, of course, that a very nice big artist's impression of a big new building was compelling without necessarily embracing the detail that you've just talked about. Yes, yeah, and I think the art of art of communication uh, in these sorts of uh, issues is really important and it's probably an area that we could work on more in the technical fields. I mean, it is one of those, one of those things that um, very, you know, technical experts are often very focused on the detail of what they are, mm. what they're doing. So how we then take that and, and communicate that in a clear way and explain the benefits, um, not just what it is that it's doing, but what those broader benefits are to the community um, is really key. But it, it is something too that we're seeing communities really pushing at a local level for more and more that they're um, wanting to see things happening and changing. So I think there's a there's a good case out there to start to do things a bit 
differently. Um, but again, that you know that definitely varies from location to location as to the willingness of communities to to accept something different. And and particularly at the moment, you know, when you're talking about psychology before, I guess we've all been through and are still going through really uncertain times. Um, so that at times people are then, you know, quite willing to embrace new things because they need something different and, and other times they're, they're looking for the comfort of the familiar. So I think we're in for some interesting interesting times ahead, but we have seen some fantastic projects coming through and trials of different things that are going on. So, you know, City of Sydney's had, you know, and, and they've had a long program of, of cycleways, but they've certainly had quite a few more during uh, the last two years, Brisbane, um, has also um, pursued more cycleways in the city, um, and that's happening. And obviously, with the Olympics coming in uh, in Brisbane, you know, we'll certainly see a lot more of that occurring as well. We often don't embrace what are really the the factors that push and pull for t- towards that. We and I trained as an engineer, where you work out the answer and decide and defend. You then go out and t- to tell people to do it. And I think what you're saying there is that there's not an answer for everything. You talked about different places. There is a process that can be helpful in all those situations, rather than necessarily an answer. Yes, absolutely. And look, it's a really, it's really challenging. Um, you know, if you think about this at an individual professional level, particularly people that that trained some time ago. You know, probably now a few decades ago, as an individual professional, if you had a profession like an engineer or a planner, you were the expert, and you knew <laughs> you had your body of knowledge, and you were you were the expert authority on that topic. The way that things have changed, that's not how generally society is accepting of experts anymore and we've certainly seen that during the pandemic with the health with health experts so you know when it comes to uh you know transport and traffic issues you know everyone you know everyone in the community is their own little expert so we have to we and i just don't think we're going to go back to a time where people will blindly accept what the experts say and what we you know know now is that things everyone uses has different needs for transport and different ways that they need to move and operate within their community. And so we can't just go on the perhaps the the previous, this is the expert view. We have to engage with the community in a different way to understand what it is that they they need. We do need to look to the future and understand what the future community needs and work through processes to develop what the options are for the future. And I think that sort of scenario planning is actually quite an important one. Mm to take into account and look at the different scenarios um, that might occur and the different needs of different people and try to find the sort of the answer that lies somewhere in the middle that has the best chance of um, accommodating those various scenarios and different groups. It's a definitely a, mess, a messier pro- process, I think, than the past, a more different and collaborative process, but hopefully should get better outcomes. What the recent situation is and what is often used in the media, of course, is to pursue certainty Whereas I think we have to be comfortable in being adaptive, but there are certainties, as Professor Phil Goodwin said the other day, of moving towards sustainability and so on. But what that looks like when it's working can be a variety of things. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, uncertainty is all we've had for the last <laughs> for the last two years. So we, you know, I think we probably should be getting good at embracing uncertainty. But that that I think that is, that is right. It is around, um, you know, it's better acknowledgement that that we really can't be certain about the future and and certain about predicting 
if whether it's through traffic movements or happy we need to be more embracing of that there will be changes and, and different things that we need to to factor into and having planning, designing, building things in a way that we can adapt mm. for the future. And that that's certainly then looking at what that means for the type the types of transport choices that we that we make. We hope that the professionals will take on that approach and uh, learn from our past, but it can also happen in community consultations as well. And sometimes our whole processes are built up to the idea and the modelling of spending a squillion dollars and doing three years of analysis and coming out and saying the answer is 42. We need to be thinking about how we can engage with the community, not just as a couple of community consultations. What people in the community do is often paint a scenario, oh, this will destroy my community. And we need to be able to then say, well, if we do this, these are the likely things that will happen, good and bad. It's, it is a really difficult process um, in that it's not, it isn't just, it isn't just, it isn't simple. It isn't a linear process. We need to have hmm. um, better ways of engaging with the community before, you know, these processes start. And, you know, even to the extent that at times if we were, engaging with the community and making uh, doing other things, other sorts of interventions, we might not need those projects in the first place. Mm. So understanding, you know, that if people pay, more people make the shift to perhaps, um, you know, public transport and active transport, then we don't need to widen that road or we don't need to build that. But that's a long, some of this is really kind of more difficult long-term propositions to be able to convey. And, you know, we also work within a political environment. So while generally for AITPM and most of our members tend to try to stay away from the politics of, of it all, in reality, uh, you know, most of the big projects are politically uh, or, or involved in politics in some way. So, you know, there are announcements that are made and things that then need to be built and timelines that need to be delivered on and, and political commitments to have certain things done. And that's the environment that that we're working within. So, it's a very complex, very complex area. I noticed in the Bradfield lecture, the Premier, Mr Perrottet, uh, came out and said that there's also a need to move away from just big projects. If we do talk about localness and contained or cities of cities and that, not totally contained, but certainly a lot of activities within it, then we have to just stop, think about what Professor David Henscher talked about, political things to cut ribbons on big projects. We need to be talking about it in what we're doing and what we need to do and what that means to the everyday people. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And that's a, um, a paradigm shift, really, from what has been going on for the decades mm. and moving away from, you know, big, big roads and big rail and big announceables, ribbon cutting and what have you. So, And in a sense, the industry is geared up around that. Um, you know, that's a whole um, big sort of economic piece of the puzzle in Australia. So shifting to more localised solutions, it, there's still plenty of work in that, but it's a different model. So, and it's definitely something that, that you know, we need to, to think about differently. And it's, it's more fine grain. It's a different, um, more collaborative and consultative approach Hiring different skill sets. So I think one of the things that, that we need to be thinking about as an institute is how we support and transition a portion of our membership to have those skills to be able to be more effective in those localised solutions, to be able to 
either themselves or work with other professionals that can help be working through those collaborative processes with communities to design the solutions that are needed um, or co-collaborate in that design process. And sometimes that might not actually involve building anything. It could be involving involve other changes and that's the things that you know being talked about for years around well ways of addressing traffic congestion include um you know changing schooling hours Mm. just adjusting you know adjusting uh the loads and peak times with different hours of work and different hours of education could make a big big difference and using the taxing method levy perhaps a user charge yeah those are you know those are all are all options that need to be need to be thought about it. And, and but you know we've now got this this sort of change where people have been spending a lot more time in their local neighborhood you know will we see that play out in the next few years as people make decisions around where they work and how they work and are they traveling as much it'll be interesting to see whether you know we see that real difference coming through i think at the moment i'm certainly hearing from across multiple jurisdictions that public transport patronage is very low. Um, so people are in their cars travelling to work with the concerns of COVID. But perhaps once that drops off, um, you know, will we see that same sort of journey pattern happening or not? It's, mm. it's really hard to know. That means we've certainly got some changes ahead. We have to believe in evolving over time. Politicians have said that a road user charge, no, never, not in my lifetime, over my dead body. That's the last thing we want, which I, I take being a politician, I take that as a maybe. Yes, yeah. It's like saying you support someone 100%, you support someone 100% and next thing uh, you've stabbed them in the back the next week. So, yeah, it's uh, it, and this is the problem I think with, um, with you know, Politicians will often come out and make bold statements against initiatives um, for fear of political um, backlash of supporting something that involves anything to, to do with some form of, of, of taxing. But, you know, I think we need to have a more mature and sophisticated conversation about these types of things um, and that they need to be more, you know, considering the evidence more and considering options before they um, simply dismiss them. So, um, you know, perhaps we'll we'll see some change in that in the coming decade. But uh, and we need processes of dialogue rather than just a media that goes for clickbait, which is often about you know the negativity. You know, you can or you can't do it, or it'll destroy everything, or it'll make everything utopia. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where um, there's uh, value in uh, more collaborative um, advocacy approaches within. Um, you know, across professions and industries um, to get um, the support behind particular initiatives to, to give governments more certainty about proceeding. So, you know, if, if broadly the, um, the industry um, across, you know, multiple aspects of an industry agree to something and really support and push that with um, politicians, that gives the politicians a bit more comfort that an initiative is the right thing um, to proceed with. So you know, perhaps part of what we need to be seeing in the coming decades where there are um, significant changes that perhaps are required, that there's a different approach to how that comes comes together, how industry comes together to help provide all of the information and evidence and, and arguments required to enable governments to support perhaps what you call sort of braver initiatives that are needed to 
to achieve that that change and that and particularly in areas that are going to when we're talking about things that will help support um, addressing climate change you know some of those that are going to be initiatives perhaps are um, have been in the past not been politically palatable and I guess things like you know congestion charging um, but um, you know we're going to need to see some different approaches if we're going to um, meet our targets and try to address climate change and emissions. I've often argued that we sometimes push it as a fundamentalist thing on a broad scale when in reality the localness of it can be very critical. Climate change has a broad, huge impact, but many people might well be able to relate to is that local pollution is so bad that we ought to talk to mothers and fathers who have a kid with asthma. You know, that might be our key measure that we're aiming for more than people who live beside major roads take more medications. People live beside major roads clean dirt off their windowsills more often. There, there are key measures that, well, key, well, key measures, yes, but measures that I can relate to more than an esoter- what may appear to be an esoteric argument. Yeah, look, and, and that's, I guess, being um, clever about how you approach it, a topic that sometimes you need to come at it from a different angle to convince people. Ah. And so, you know, there are a range of different um, different impacts and different areas that you know, would be addressed that would, would still have the same the same effect. So I think, it, it, you know, it is around just being thinking outside the square on how um, we tackle some of these arguments and coming at it a different way. And also, um, you know, it, there's that mix of often we'll rely on on evidence and evidence is really important, but sometimes people uh, don't believe evidence or or they are swayed in different ways. And certainly, you know, again, with parallels, we've certainly seen this with the with the pandemic where there are, you know, segments of society that are not interested in the evidence. They've got different perspectives um, and are coming at, at it from a different different way. But, uh, you know, I sort of think back to some work that the Heart Foundation did probably now 10 years ago or more um, around walking and the impact on the, you know, local economy and particularly around what happens when you remove car parks to provide better, you know, better pedestrian areas in sort of shopping high streets and, you know, certainly often when in local government, you know, if you want to remove some car parks to put in some curbside dining or create a better space for people to be in, you know, traders would be up in arms about the loss of car parking. But, um, you know, study after study has showed that actually creating better pedestrian environments and removing some of the off-street car parking actually improves business. Mm. There's more money coming through the door. So there's work to do in um, looking at some of the, the barriers that, uh, whether they're real or perceived barriers that communities and businesses um, and government have when it comes to sort of making positive changes and then identifying the evidence and, and arguments and putting things to them in a, in a way that actually is more compelling. But at times, you know, you can't just keep saying the same thing louder. Um, you need to come at it from a different angle. Compelling is not necessarily a flashy video or what used to be more colours on your overhead slides. It's engagement. It's capturing people in a way that does. I'm very encouraged by all that. Kirsty, that sounds like it's a it's a progressive and a thoughtful approach that is being taken uh, in that direction. Um, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it greatly. Thanks, David. Good to talk. Overdrive is a radio and podcast program featuring road tests, interviews and features on motoring and transport. 
More information is available at drivenmedia.com.au and podcasts on Spotify or iTunes.